Christian greetings to each of you. As you are aware, or I guess you should say most of you are aware, you're not all aware, I have been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians the last, I would just figure it up, a little over two, about two and a half years. Albeit, it's been interrupted frequently with, um, with some uh, deviation from this, but uh, we're getting approaching the last chapter of the book today. Um, this first letter to Corinthians is unique from most of the other letters in the New Testament for several reasons, but one is that it addresses such a wide spectrum of fairly major issues facing the church. And the letter is addressed to the church. But it would also, you could, uh, you can conclude that certainly while there was some significant uh, problems in a number of areas, that these problems were likely from a small number of people within the church. It's not that the entire church was polluted with these problems. Some speculate that by addressing the letter to the church, uh, I mean, he does this in other letters as well, Paul is assuring the congregation there that, this le that his letter would be read to the entire congregation. And as such, it would publicly call out the conduct of the ones that he was targeting. And, and part of the reason for that is that it, uh, even though there was probably a small number that were acting in this way, it was also likely that these were rather influential and probably even wealthy individuals. And therefore, they had a lot of influence and sway within the church. And by calling them out and rebuking them publicly, it gave them no place to... Um, justify their disruptive behavior. But what I also find interesting that in spite of the difficult issues that Paul confronts, it's also clear that he loves them dearly. Um, even though I'm sure I would have been angry with them, some of the things that they were dealing with, and perhaps Paul was as well. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Calling them sanctified in Christ Jesus, calling them saints, seems quite generous, uh, given the issues that he confronts later on in the letter. Then jumping on down to verse not, uh, 4, that first chapter as well, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, just the, the generosity that overflows Paul's heart here as he expresses 
his thanks to God for them and the way that they were strengthened, built up, confirmed, multiple things that he mentions in here. And yet, just a couple of chapters later, I mean, the very next chapter, he's addressing some hard issues of divisions and even some other things. So Paul is addressing uh, the, the problems there, and then um, it's also that he's addressing a number of questions that they had. Um, so apparently, even though Paul had spent 18 months there with them, setting up the church and so forth, there was questions that weren't resolved. And so they had sent some questions to Paul, and Paul addresses those questions in this letter. But he also brings up other issues. He doesn't restrict the letter to those questions. And this morning, I want to look at the last chapter here, uh, chapter 16 of this first letter to the church at Corinth. And I've entitled this morning's message, Do Everything in Love. And that comes from verse 14. Uh, it's a paraphrase of verse 14. But it feels like the challenge in verse 14 permeates this entire letter as, you, as we reflect on the, the letter that Paul wrote here and concludes with those simple instructions, that simple instruction, do everything in love. And he also, in this last chapter, actually addresses two remaining questions that he hasn't answered up to this point um, as, he, uh, as, he, as we read down through here and as we see this. One of the ways in this letter that you can tell that he's addressing questions, he will start with uh, now concerning or something similar to that. And that's a means of knowing that he's responding to something that they were wondering about and wanted clarification on. So reading the first four verses here in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning, there we have that, the collection of the saint, for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that, there will, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This seems like a very practical kind of uh, instruction here and so forth, and I'm not going to get into the specifics of how they were doing this or why. Um, but they apparently had some question about what their role was in financially assisting other believers. And in this case, it seems it was the suffering, Christ the suffering um, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know why they had a question about this. Um, it certainly doesn't answer, I mean, doesn't, indicate that, but there are several possibilities. Perhaps, while the Corinthian believers were predominantly Gentile and the Jerusalem believers were predominantly Jewish, and there may have been some question as to whether the Gentiles should help Jews or maybe perhaps whether the Jews would actually uh, accept help from Gentiles. Uh, we don't know for sure. That may have been part of what was going on here. 
but there was there was some question, and so they were um, they were trying to understand, uh, wanted to understand here. <clears throat> now that may seem a bit odd to us today, but it was a harsh reality in the early church of Jews and Gentiles had to work hard to accept each other as brothers and sisters in the same family, if you will. That is not the way any of them had grown up accustomed to do, and so it took work to see each other and to accept each other as brothers and sisters. Like I indicated earlier, there's uh, some indications throughout the book uh, of some, that there was a number of very affluent believers in the Corinthian church, as well as some that were quite poor. Uh, we saw that in chapter 11, when they were, the way that they were approaching the Lord's Supper with the wealthy indulging and the poor going hungry. Um, and so that, uh, that may have played into some of this as well in how do we know what to give or, or how do we handle this. And then the question about giving may also have had something to do with about how much to give. What kind of guidance does Paul have on that? I find it interesting that the instructions Paul gives are rather general, uh, and they're literally valid to this day. Um, he just is very simple. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and store it up as he may prosper uh, so that there's no collecting when I come. To me, there's two points here. He's instructing them to give regularly, or weekly in this case, uh, give consistently. The first day of the week is mentioned here. That's an indicator that that's probably the day that they gathered, although that's not actually stated within the text here. The Jewish Sabbath was equivalent to our Saturday, the last day of the week. Jesus rose on the first day of the week, and the early Christians gathered to worship on that day in recognition of Christ's resurrection. So, on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, put something aside. And I find interesting the word something there. It doesn't say how much. It can be a nickel. It can be, you know, it's not the amount, but put something aside. But we're to do something, and, and we're to do so regularly, to do so consistently. And then the second part, the second aspect of the instruction is Give as God prospers you. That leaves it wide open. Paul does not invoke the tithe from the Old Testament when it comes to establishing an amount. He simply says, give as God prospers you. Neither does he mention offerings. So in the Old Testament, you have tithes and offerings, which were above and beyond the tithe. Some suggest that it could have been as much as 10 or 15% more than the tithe until they did the offerings. But, God, but Paul is using the phrase, as God prospers you. And it's freeing both in terms of the percentage or an amount. It's not proportionate, meaning if it was 10% or 15% or 30%, that amount may be entirely affordable by the wealthy, but totally unaffordable for the poorest among them. And um, so rather than it being proportionate in that way, uh, 
it's more of a progressive kind of amount that is suggested. Give something or give as God prospers you. Give, as, give more as you have more available to give, is what Paul is saying here. Don't restrict your giving because you've reached a certain percentage or a certain amount. These extremely rich and extremely poor believers, Paul was concerned about that and did not want them comparing with each other about how much they were giving or what proportion they were giving, but rather simply base it on what you're earning and what you can give. That's what he's reminding them of here. I'm reminded of the life of John Wesley, and I'm sure that some of you have heard this, and his example. So when he was a young man, uh, he got a substantial raise from the 30 pounds that he was earning. Um, he, had, he was living off of 28 pounds, and he gave the extra two pounds away. And he decided, he committed to maintain his lifestyle of 28 pounds, regardless of how much he earned. Shortly after that, I mean, it, he, got a, he got a substantial uh, raise shortly after that. In subsequent years, his income doubled to 60 pounds, tripled to 90 pounds, and quadrupled to 120 pounds. At that point, he was giving away twice, three times, and four times as much as what he was actually earning and keeping for himself. His income continued to increase and at one point in his life, he was earning 1,400 pounds. But he lived on 28 pounds and gave away 50 times what he was keeping for himself. I don't believe the Lord would have prospered him if he would have not been willing to keep that commitment. While I was in graduate school, I was challenged to write a paper on this approach of setting a personal finish line on earnings. That's a challenge to think about. Like what? Our natural tendency is to adjust our lifestyle to our level of income. When we do this, we'll likely remain proportionate in our giving. Uh, it'll be proportionate to our income. But by choosing a modest lifestyle and a finish line, meaning what we can live within, while committing to give away excess, I believe God sees and honors and will test that commitment for each one of us, freeing us to earn and give far more than we may be able to otherwise. For all of us, regardless of our level of income, we do well to follow Paul's instructions here, to give regularly and give as God prospers us. The Corinthian believers must have really taken these few verses to heart. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul compliments them for their generosity, and in which they were giving, it's stated that they gave sacrificially even beyond their means. Now, I'm not sure how that's possible to give beyond your means, but they were doing that, and so that's a pattern for us. And so do, we do well to, um, 
to give in love, uh, give, sacri give regularly, give as God prospers us. We're to do everything in love, to give in love. Verses uh, 5 through 9. And this is Paul's plans here for travel. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. <clears throat> so Paul was in Ephesus at the time of this writing, across the Aegean Sea from Corinth. Um, and so he plans to come to Corinth, and he was planning to travel north around um, the upper, through Macedonia or modern-day Greece, down to Corinth which would take him through Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea on the way down there if he simply followed uh, the, the road down through there. And so that, that was what he's indicating here. And we can conclude that likely this letter was being written in the late winter or early spring because he projects that he's staying in Ephesus until Pentecost, which is... May, generally. Um, and it's also interesting that Pentecost is mentioned, which indicates this probably had a special significance to Paul and the early churches here as well. And he mentions the opposition, the adversaries in, in Ephesus, but there was also great opportunity there. And I found it interesting that what... Um, Daryl read from 2 Corinthians 1 in that it talks about some of those adversaries as well uh, as he was sharing this morning in devotions. But how long would a journey like that take? I don't know. It would take several months at least and certainly take more than that if he was stopping along the way for any amount of time. And he anticipates spending the winter in Corinth because the seas were treacherous to um, sail during the, that time. But those plans were all tentative and subject to change uh, when he says, as the Lord permits. And scholars would indicate that they don't, he did not make, these plans did not hold out. If you look at chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, he says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Um, Apparently, he ended up going directly from Ephesus to Corinth, and the visit did not go so well. Um, don't know exactly what happened, but it was not a pleasant visit. Um, so here we see what Paul's intentions were and what he would have liked to do, but he leaves it in the Lord's hands as well. And it's just interesting to think about both the... Um, if you see in verse um, 8 uh, of chapter 1 that Daryl read, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia, which that would be uh, Ephesus, which is where he was at when he wrote verse uh, 9 here in chapter 16. 
just interesting to see how, how these pieces you can kind of put together as you look at these letters uh, that, that Paul wrote and, and piecing together the history. Then we go to verses 10 through 11, talking about Timothy. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, let's put our, well, Timothy was being asked here, Paul was asking Timothy to deliver this completed letter on his behalf to the Corinthian church. Um, and so he's telling them, put him, at, put him at ease when he comes. He's doing the work of the Lord. Um, while he was a protege of Paul, Timothy was also significantly younger and less experienced. And from the letters we see written to Timothy later on, we see that Timothy is described as more timid and reserved than Paul was, who was very bold and outspoken. So put yourself a bit in Timothy's shoes. He's delivering this long letter addressing some serious problems in the Corinthian church. He's well aware of these problems. He's been there with, with Paul while he's writing this, and he likely even heard stories and the, more of a context of what was behind some of these problems uh, that Paul confronts in this letter as Paul processed and dictated this letter. He likely had some misgivings. Uh, we can kind of construe that from the way that Paul writes this about being the messenger that's taking this letter to these believers. And the troublemakers that were there in Corinth may end up interrogating Timothy about the content of the letter, and so he'd have to try to explain himself and so forth. It may even be that Timothy would have been asked to actually read the letter to the church or maybe even give additional teaching about certain aspects of what was included. So it's interesting to think about this for several reasons. One, I don't believe Paul would have included this, these verses about Timothy if he would not have believed that it was a likely challenge or an issue for the Corinthian believers. You're not going to tell somebody that they need to do something if you know that they're going to do that. You only need to do that if you're not sure that they will or that it's likely that they won't. So he's telling them to put him at ease. He's doing the work of the Lord, and don't let anybody despise him. Don't look down on him with disdain, and then let him on his way, help him on his way in peace. Summing this up, maybe another way of stating this would just simply be respect him or treat him with the respect and appreciation he deserves for what he's doing on my behalf. And as I thought about it, that's good advice for all of us. You know, everyone has different strengths and weaknesses. Not everyone approaches uh, life or issues or problems with the same experience or same context or same uh, personality. And, but he was, Paul, uh, Timothy was one of the, the leaders at that time, and so treat leaders with respect, not with disdain, even if they, 
if what they do may reflect on their inexperience or lack of knowledge. They deserve the respect anyway. They don't deserve to be treated with disdain. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with, I'm sorry, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it is not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now this is, this is interesting. This is the second question that Paul is answering here right at the very end of this letter. Now concerning our brother Apollos. Apparently somebody at Corinth was wanting Apollos to come back and visit. Um, and so Paul is addressing this question here at the end. He was like, he encouraged him to come, but it's not working out at this time. He'll come when he has opportunity. Now, you may recall, Apollos was one of those kind of, um, one of those figures that caused some of the contention within the church of Corinth. He was a gifted speaker, he was an orator, and there were some in Corinth that idolized him, so much that it became divisive. Going back to chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are, is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So they had these different factions within them, and Apollos was one of these polarizing figures within that, uh, that context. And then in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul also continues, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. One could conclude, just reading these first several chapters of these divisions, that there may have been some even contention between Paul, Apollos, and Cephas that caused these divisions. Perhaps there were, I don't know, but we see in chapter 16, verse 12, that Paul strongly encouraged Apollos to visit the Corinthian believers. Paul was not trying to keep them apart or to try to keep Apollos from going back. However, Apollos decided not to do so for whatever reason. And again, this is purely speculation, perhaps Paul, uh, I'm sorry, perhaps Apollos was concerned that his visit would only create more division. And that's, Paul was trying to minimize that and try to minimize the divisions. Perhaps um, Apollos thought that they would receive Paul's letter more graciously if he wasn't there. And they could just hear it straight from Paul. Uh, or maybe it was just that he had other commitments and it wasn't feasible for him to go. We don't know. But it is noteworthy that Paul makes very clear to the Corinthian believers that he and Apollos are not adversaries and that he wanted them to come and he was supportive of Apollos going to them. 
there is some speculation and interest even about why Paul waits until the end of chapter 16 to answer this question. Uh, is there any significance to that? I'm, I'm not sure. It comes, he answers this question after he states his intention of coming to visit. So he's making clear about that. Um, there were certainly those in Corinth who would have preferred if Apollos came rather than him. Um, especially, they would have been so after receiving this letter, I'm sure. And if, the other thing is, if Paul would have put this statement about Apollos' intentions back in chapter 1 or 2 when he was addressing some of these divisions and so forth, would his followers, those that said, I follow Apollos, been able to really even hear the rest of the letter that was written? And so there's some thought that this is held until the very end of the letter as a way of keeping some of these uh, individuals' attention and uh, the ability to hear the letter in a different context than if they knew right from the onset that Apollos wasn't going to be coming uh, at this time. Uh, we don't know, but regardless, there, there, was, there was strong respect for Apollos in this context. And I'm going to skip verses 13 and 14 right now, jump down to verse 15 to 18. As we continue to think about the respect about respecting each other in love. We saw that with Timothy. We saw that with, uh, with Apollos. And now he continues. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Now, this is different than Timothy or Apollos in that these are not necessarily church leaders. These are individuals that have devoted themselves to the work of the kingdom, being useful in the church, Stephanus was the first convert in Corinth. It's indicated that likely the church gathered in their house. He was probably a very wealthy uh, person, but he was not a leader uh, within the church there. While he had respect and that he was appreciated, he was not one of the designated or appointed leaders. The other, well, the three of them, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, probably brought these questions from Corinth uh, to Paul for the, him to respond to and to address um, these questions in this letter. But Paul encourages the Corinthian church to give recognition to these people, give recognition to such people. Be subject, first of all, he says, be subject to such as these. Um, work together, consider yourselves uh, fellow laborers and fellow workers together, and then give recognition to these people because everybody has something to offer to the body of Christ. And these three individuals 
certainly had that as well. And he wanted, again, asking the Corinthian believers to show these men respect with love. Going back to verse 13 and 14, which I feel is the heart of this, this chapter. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. These five simple and concise statements are a good summary of this entire letter. If done sincerely, I believe these five statements address all the issues that were addressing the Corinthian church. And some of the issues, just a brief rundown of what some of those issues were again, just to remind ourselves. Divisions within the church, different factions trying to gain control of the church. They, there were some that were elevating human knowledge and intellectualism and wisdom in unhealthy ways within the church. There was blatant sexual, sexual immorality and sin within the church. There were lawsuits among believers. He addressed the importance and the value of both marriage as well as singleness within the church. The issue of how do you address conscience issues, food offered to idols, and surrendering our own rights, head coverings, uh, desecration of the Lord's Supper. Spiritual gifts are designed to build up others in the body of Christ. And the speaking in tongues and orderly worship and the centrality of the resurrection to the gospel of Christ. If they would follow these five imperatives, these five commands, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love, those other issues would have likely been resolved. Be watchful. Be alert. Be on guard. Be fully aware. Watch for Satan's lying tactics, the false doctrines, the erroneous theology. If we aren't alert, we will be deceived, I believe. Deception, by its very definition, is, happens when we lower our guard and convince ourselves it's okay to believe something contrary to Scripture. Slowly we move away from the truth, and it's not intentional, because if it were intentional, we would not be deceived. We'd be doing so intentionally. But we, those that are deceived believe they are not. They genuinely believe they are not deceived. And if they would see it, they'd change course. A warning for me and for all of us is that any of us is subject to potential deception by Satan, especially if we don't remain vigilant and on full alert. So be watchful. Stand firm. Be anchored in truth. Build on the rock of Jesus Christ. Don't be swept away with the latest phenomenon, whatever that may be, the latest Mega church growth strategies, um, popular pro podcasts that aren't consistent with scripture, social media influencers. Don't deviate from the true gospel, but stand firm on truth, on scripture, 
on uh, Jesus Christ. Act like men. That sounds pretty one-sided, if you will, uh, masculine, geared toward the men, and it is. It literally would be translated, quit you like men. But what it means is to be brave and to be courageous. As such, that's not limited to men. Um, it applies to everyone. We're to be courageous. We're to be brave. We're to be mature. Um, when you're alert and watchful and standing firm, you're going to also have to be brave. It doesn't do, it's not enough just to watch, but we also need to be willing to act. It requires, bravery requires the courage to take a stand against something when we don't know the outcome. If we knew the outcome, it's not, a, it's not bravery, but it's when we don't know the outcome that requires bravery. Earlier in the letter, the Corinthians were described as infants. Paul is challenging them here to not be infants. Another way of be brave, be mature, maybe another way you could grow up, act like an adult, um, be, be brave. Be strong. Don't rely on your own internal power and strength. Trust God and rely on him to give you the power that is available for every believer. We are promised the supernatural power through the Holy Spirit to stand against Satan and his tactics. Verse 14, do everything in love. Well, the previous four imperatives are important. Paul probably could have summed up this entire letter with these four words. Do everything with love. If the Corinthians would truly have been doing everything in love, this letter probably would not have been needed. Paul devoted the entire chapter 13 on the importance of love in the context of the spiritual gifts. And here again, he's reminding them of the importance of truly loving each other. If there was love, there wouldn't be divisions. If there was love, there wouldn't be immorality and sin or lawsuits between believers. Um, if there was love, there'd be an appreciation for differing ideas about such things as food offered to idols. There'd be a willingness to lay down my rights out of respect for others. It's valuing a fellow believer's gift and value, even if it's very different than my own, and more concerned about building those up around me than getting any kind of recognition for what I'm doing. That's what love can do in this context, do everything in love. And in a lot of ways, those four words encapsulate the kingdom of God as well. That's just a good way of thinking about and describing what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Do everything in love. Now the last 
five verses, verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with their, the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, helped in the church of Corinth in its early days. And they were, through the books of Acts, we read a lot about, or quite a bit about them. They were involved in various places at various times. But now they're in Ephesus with Paul, and he's sending greetings from their church back to Corinth um, on behalf of of them as well as the other believers there in Ephesus. Um, Paul... Well, this letter was likely dictated by Paul and written by a scribe. That's the way correspondence was generally handled during that time. There were handwriting was not as widespread. Not every, not everyone wrote the way that we do today. But rather, there would be scribes that would write. Not everybody had the ability to write, and so they would dictate to a scribe to to write uh, something like this out. So much like a typed document today, or per, and perhaps even dictated, Paul signed this then as a way of authenticating it, that this truly is what I wrote or what I am saying. And it's also an opportunity at the very end then to add a personal note. Um, you know, sometimes how we do receive a Christmas letter or whatever is a page of just copied and then a personal note at the bottom. Think of that as what Paul is doing here in these last several verses. Um, So he does that. And so in this note, he makes several rather surprising and maybe even a bit jarring statements. Um, He says that if anyone doesn't love God, let him be anathema is what is in the King James, um, and it means to be accursed. There's only one other place in Scripture that this kind of language is used, and that's in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. There's two verses. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you the gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. And here Paul is invoking that same language, let him be anathema, if anyone doesn't love God. And I don't know for sure why he invokes such strong language here, but I believe he does so for a reason. Perhaps it ties back to the verse 14, do everything in love. That I mean, we can't, if we don't love God, nothing else matters. Perhaps that's what he's getting back. We won't even begin to be able to love anyone else. 
It's also interesting here at the end of uh, verse, whatever it is here, um, verse 22, that immediately following the Aramaic word anathema is then the word maranatha with no punctuation between it. And so it kind of, like, what does he mean? It says, if no one love God, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema, maranatha. And that is an Aramaic word, and it's translated different ways or some variation of our Lord or our Lord come or come Lord. Um, and so he's, he's using both of these terms right here uh, in relation to this idea of loving God. Even those, even as those who refuse to love God will find themselves accursed. He's saying, Lord, come. And then he concludes, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, be with you. And that is very much the way that he opened the letter as well, is that the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He then concludes here, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So he started out the letter emphasizing his love for them and how much he cares for them. And his last sentence here as well is that, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. What's interesting is this word love here is phileo, meaning brotherly love. It's not agape love. When he's talking up in verse 14, that's agape love. In verse 22, when he's talking about loving the Lord, that's agape love. But here he uses the term phileo, as in he affectionately loves these believers at Corinth and appreciates them. And I have to wonder what, if, if Paul isn't reinforcing again the value of just doing everything in love. He says that in verse 14. Then he emphasizes loving God and now loving the Corinthians, loving others in a way that even though he was harsh in his letter, in parts of his letter, he truly affectionately loves and cares for them and appreciates them, uh, them deeply. I, my challenge for you this morning is that if you remember nothing else about the letter to the Corinthians and what is taught in there, just remember the four words, do everything in love. When you give, how much you give, what you give, do so with love, not out of obligation, but do so with love. Show respect for your brothers and sisters and do so with love. They may not be as polished or as accomplished speaker like Apollos, but they deserve to be respected. They may rub us, us the wrong way sometimes, but they still deserve our respect rather than our disdain. 
They may be inexperienced or immature in their conduct, but they still deserve respect for who they are. I don't believe we can truly respect someone we don't care about and love. And then just thinking in terms of a church, the church is a family. Siblings put together in a local church body by God to grow us spiritually. We don't and won't understand why God brings together the specific mix of people that he does. But he does so for a reason. And we can have the confidence that if we embrace our brothers and sisters in love, in spite of their quirks and weaknesses, God will continue to transform our lives into the image of Jesus Christ himself. So my challenge for you today is do everything in love. For this week, do everything in love. From now on, do everything in love. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, I want to thank you for this powerful letter to the Corinthian church, a letter that addresses many of the issues we face in today's society and culture. It's a letter that is relevant to us today. We just reflect on the purpose of this letter in, in identifying and correcting error and thinking uh, among the Corinthian believers. I just pray that you would do the same in our minds, in our hearts. As we reflect on the text today, the idea of standing firm, of being watchful, standing firm, being brave, be strong, but most of all, doing everything in love. I just pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to do that. Empower us to show love to those that we come in contact with. Empower us to um, demonstrate love and respect to those that don't even really deserve it at times. And Lord, we do so out of love for you. And uh, just ask that you would cultivate in each of us uh, both a desire and um, a deeper love and appreciation for who you are and what you have done on our behalf. And out of that, get, enable us to love those around us in healthy ways and do everything in love. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>